everybody and welcome to back to a brand new episode of the three and D I'm Paul Lombardi and I'd like to welcome everyone back to the review and preview network for my weekly NBA and college basketball show in tonight's episode we'll have Thomas Gavetta join us again from review and preview as I'll be diving into the Kevin Porter Jr. trade a potential Andre Drummond trade the legacy of Kobe Bryant and a lot more so I I really appreciate everybody tuning in and First topic of discussion we're going to have to go over is the Kevin Porter Jr. trade. So um, this this past week, Cleveland um, decided to deal Kevin Porter Jr., their young shooting guard, uh, in kind of like an abrupt fashion. It was difficult because um, the dude is good young. He's a good young player, uh, good scorer pretty lethal and uh, a lot of a lot of issues going back to the uh, uh, what do you call it going back to the locker room um, so so the, he was dealt to the Houston Rockets in exchange for a second round pick um, I think it was a good trade personally and uh, I think it was low risk high reward um, there was like the Cleveland had been having a falling out. He was the 30th pick in the 2019 NBA draft. Um, he was a big five-star recruit out of USC. We talked about him a little bit last in last week's show. Um, he's really good, and he's got he's got some off-court issues. There's no doubt about that. Um, part of the reason why Cleveland traded him, you can do your research into you know the specific reason why he got traded, but. Um, it was mostly due to off-court antics, all that kind of stuff. So the Rockets brought in, in the post-James Harden era, they brought in a guy that could be the future of the team. I really think so. If he can figure things out in Houston, he's got a ton of talent. He's a lethal scorer. Joining the backcourt with John Wall might be exactly what he needs. And I, I'm like very excited for this. I think that um, it was a great move for the Rockets. Only gave up a second-round pick. Cleveland had to get rid of him. Uh, that was that was definitely a solid move. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, basically stole a first round pick. I really think this guy would have been a lottery pick too had he played like a full season at USC. He had he had some off court issues, like I was saying. Um, missed a good amount of his freshman season, uh, but was a five star recruit, big score, 
um, hasn't played at all this season. So it, it'll be, it's going to be very interesting, I think. And I think it was a good player for Cleveland to get rid of, you know, first and foremost, that was the, that's been one of the biggest news across the league. I would say is, um, is poor trade this past week, but it's, um, staying in Cleveland, another, another issue that we, that is definitely important to address the Andre Drummond situation. Now, this is a very, very interesting topic. I don't think there's any urgency right now from Cleveland to get rid of him. They just got rid of Kevin Porter Jr. As we've been seeing around the league, um, after the James Harden trade, uh, they brought in Jared Allen, who's been playing great. Jared Allen's been awesome. And he's looking like he's going to be the future center. He's under control. He's a first-round pick. Um He's going to be, and he's he fits into the mold of where Cleveland's headed right now. Andre Drummond really doesn't, and this goes back to, I mean, last February honestly when they made the, the original Andre Drummond trade. I didn't love it. I am still confused to this day, and I'm even more confused now why they really made that trade. We knew that Detroit had to get rid of him. They did not want to extend him long term. Um. But Cleveland just didn't seem like a tremendous fit to me. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what it was. There, they were not competing last year. Unless they were planning on signing him long term, then it really didn't make much sense to me. And now they basically got away with highway robbery, getting with in order to get Jared Allen. So I think that an Andre Drummond trade has to happen soon. I think everybody across the league knows it. And there's a little bit of it. There's definitely some urgency around it. I actually just saw on Twitter during this afternoon um, that the Nets hope that Andre Drummond will be bought out. I mean, they could hope for sure. I think that a trade can definitely happen. Um, I think a trade will happen. The Nets, if they get to him to fall in their lap, that's fantastic. Might even be the kind of defensive player that they need. We've been seeing this past week. Um, the Nets have been losing some close games and the Harden, Kyrie, and KD era is off to a bit of a rocky start. And not, not a terrible start, not something to be very alarmed of. The problem is they don't play too much defense. And you knew that going into to the entire situation. You got three on-the-ball uh, dominant players. So there is there is no doubt um, that he's going to be able to fit, that they're going to be able to figure it out like at some point. But it'll be interesting to see when. But regardless of the Nets, back to Andre Drummond. Drummond is going to have to get dealt. He doesn't have a home anymore after that trade. Uh, The Nets would love him, like I would say. But I've hypothesized a few different scenarios for um, an Andre Drummond trade. I got three teams in my mind that I think could be tremendous fits for, for Drummond. I've got... I'll let you in on the three teams are the Portland Trailblazers, the Chicago Bulls, and the Boston Celtics. I have two potential trades that I mocked up um, for the Trailblazers and one for each other team. Obviously, the Trailblazers and Celtics come to mind. They don't have a dominant big man. The Trailblazers have one of the best backcourts with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. They could really use a big man. Joseph Nurkic is great, but he just got hurt again. They can they can use somebody who plays who is dominant in the paint and does the kind of things that Drummond does. 
and Boston Celtics too. I've been saying this for a long time. The Celtics need a big man badly, and they have not been addressing it. They haven't been addressing it for a long time. Um, Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum are turning into a tremendous big three, but they need a big man down low. They signed Tristan Thompson. He's not the he's a an all rights bandage for right now, but he's not the long term answer. I think that Drummond would have a lot of offers this offseason, but I think these teams could be in on trades. And the Chicago Bulls are an outside-the-box team that I took. The Bulls are deep into a rebuild right now, coming off of several lottery picks. They got their franchise player with Zach Levine. Uh, they do they do have some young big men with Laurie Markkinen and Wendell Carter Jr. I'm not too sure, I'm not too sure Wendell Carter Jr. is going to become a stud. I think he's going to become a solid center, but I think that Andre Drummond kind of revolutionizes that team a little bit better. Um, Laurie Markkinen, though, completely different story. He's a scoring forward, doesn't grab a lot of rebounds. I think that that this could be something interesting to mix up um, the Bulls a little bit and maybe even get them into the uh, um, into the playoff race. So my first trade that I've written up, I got the Cavs get Zach Collins, Anthony Simons, a second-round pick, and the Blazers get Andre Drummond. Now, before I go into much deeper into all of these trades, you might the across when you first read some of these trades, you might be like, "Oh, that's too little for Drummond," all that kind of stuff. But you got to remember, he's coming. He, this might just be a rental for these teams. He's coming off. Um, he's going to be a free agent after this year. There's, um, there's going to be a lot of teams that are in on him when he becomes a free agent too, wondering if they can uh, sign him long-term, all that kind of stuff. So he, so if he does get traded, he's not going to go for like a huge blockbuster trade, I don't think. Something like this right here could make a lot of sense for the Cavs, for, for the Cavs and for the Blazers because the Cavs get back Zach Collins, who's good and young. Um, i big fan of Zach Collins. He's a good rebounding, good scoring, a big man. He's, been, he's started to put it together last season and then got hurt again. He got, got hurt again this year now, too, And as he was trying to figure it out. it's It's been a difficult situation for him. And Anthony Simons has been starting to get minutes. He was a rookie out of IMG Academy. He skipped college. Um, the Blazers took him a couple of years ago. He's been one of their better backup point guards. He's getting more minutes now. He's a bit of a project, but he's got a lot of talent. And a second-round pick for Drummond. That could be one option for the Cavs if, you know, they want to just get rid of Drummond. That could be a good amount to come back. The Cavs there have um, probably their future backup point guard with Anthony Simmons to back up Darius Garland and Colin Sexton in the backcourt. Um, another, and then the second Portland trade is a little bit more interesting. I got Cavs getting Zach Collins again, Gary Trent Jr., Anthony Simons, and a first-round pick. And the Blazers get Andre Drummond and Kevin Love. Now, this one could be very interesting because we've been hearing Blazers and Kevin Love um, connected for a long time now. And there's no doubt that he's getting paid a lot of money. He gets hurt a lot. The Cavs are in a rebuild. They're going to be looking to trade him as well. There's uh, multiple pieces. JaVale McGee will be looked to get traded. Anything with value and that's a movable piece the Cavs are going to try to trade, I would assume, unless they really want to go all in on a playoff run this year, that'll end up resulting in nothing. But I think that 
Zach Collins, Garrett Trent Jr. is a great shooter off the bench, had a great performance in the bubble last year and is off to a good start off the bench this year. He's a good backcourt piece. He's a sharp shooter, plays a little bit of defense. Anthony Simons just went over. He's a, he's a bit of a project, good young point guard, getting some more minutes. Uh, First-round pick is always good. You get the Blaz- you get one of the Blazers' first-round picks. And then Zach Collins, who can become uh, the Cavs' future power forward, too, if they get rid of Kevin Love especially. And then the Blazers get Andre Drummond and Kevin Love. Love has another year, I believe, after this on his contract. Drummond's got an expiring contract. This is for the Blazers to make that splash and finally decide to go all in and try to win Lillard that championship. I think that this is an important move. I think that Hassan Whiteside played great for them last year. And I thought it was very interesting. They did. They didn't resign him. I also thought it was very interesting that he signed for so little and he doesn't play that much for Sacramento, but that's a completely different story. But I, I think that the trailblazers need a big man that's dynamic that can grab rebounds I mean, if Juice, if Joseph Nurkic is playing, we're having a completely different discussion because he's that dynamic center. But he's going to be out another several months, it looks like. And he missed basically all of last year. He's got a ton of injury issues. You need a placeholder guy. And I think Andre Drummond is the perfect piece for them to even potentially sign long term. If that becomes the case, you might trade Nurkic too, but that's something you figure out down the road. So the, that's, that's my thoughts on the Trailblazers with Andre Drummond and there's the Chicago Bulls. So the Bulls would be interesting because they're only going to, if they were to even be in on the Andre Drummond sweepstakes, which I think could be a good thing for them. If they were able to sign him long-term, they would have to dish out some of their bench pieces. So my trade, my hypothetical trade is the Cavs get guards, Denzel Valentine and and Chandler Hutchison and a first-round pick, and the Bulls get Andre Drummond in the second-round pick. So Valentine, former first-round pick for the Bulls, good bench player, hasn't really amounted to the starter that they hoped he would. He's a decent shooter, good defender. Chandler Hutchinson's another 3-and-D guy. He's a shooting guard slash small forward from Boise State. Been on the team for a bit. He starts a lot. He's the probably the bigger piece that the Cavs would get back during this trade. Um he could be a good bench piece for the future for the Cavs. Denzel Valentine could. Valentine was a free agent this offseason. He get re-signed on a one-year deal. Hutchinson's under contract a little bit, still under his rookie deal. And then you get a first-round pick out of it, too. And then in order for it to kind of even out, the Bulls send um, the Bulls get Andre Drummond in his second-round pick, too. So since the first-round pick might be a little steep, the, they'll get a second-round pick in exchange. And, you know, the Bulls are not going to do this. If, again, they're not going to do this if they don't think they can sign him long-term or if they're convinced with Wendell Carter. I don't know what's going on in that locker room, that Bulls locker room, what they think, but I think this could be a little bit of a move that could you know, potentially make a splash and throw the Bulls into the playoff conversation because they're, st- they're starting to get there. Uh, Zach Levine has become their franchise player. He's having a tr- another tremendous start to the season. He is scoring. They got some good veterans with Otto Porter, and they got uh, Thaddeus Young off the bench, Ryan Archie Diacono. They they got a decent team that could be good enough in the East. And there's The question is, are they actually like dominant? I don't know if I would say that. Like, Would they become dominant with Andre Drummond? But they would be good enough. I actually wrote about um, heading into free agency. I wrote about my some my predictions for – who um 
where every big free agent signs. And one of the moves I had was Montrez Harrell going to the Bulls on a big contract. I thought that that was a little outside the box. I thought it was something interesting. I mean, he shocked everybody and went to the Lakers, um, deciding to abandon the Clippers. Uh, guess in for not even that much money too. I was I was thinking like four years, eighty ish million. Um, there was no, it was two years, nineteen, I believe, for the Lakers. But I was thinking this back then that it's like they could they could use a big man. There's no doubt about that. And I really think that they could use a game changing big man if they were if they want to add like an extra player alongside Zach Levine. They think that they're right on the cusp or something. Then. I think they, they need to be in the drum and talks or they just wait for, you know, the off season to occur. Then the third team is the Boston Celtics. So the Celtics are, have some tradable pieces. The thing is the Celtics, I'm not a big, I you know, as a Knicks fan, I hate the Celtics obviously, but I'm also not a big fan of their team right now. They have a good big three with Kemba, Jalen Brown and Jason Tam. Jason Tam's coming back from COVID. Uh, this week, I believe. And Jalen Brown's been balling out. He's been great. Kemba Walker has just came back from injury, missed the beginning of the season, but he's he's back and is better. But they need a big man. They don't have a big man. They drafted Robert Williams. He hasn't really panned out. They had Ennis Cantor last year. Um, they traded him to Portland during the offseason. He plays almost no defense and is a scoring center, which you don't need. You need somebody who, who harasses on the boards. And that's exactly what Andre Drummond does. You need somebody who can take some of the edge off of some of the other players to grab rebounds. And I think that they, they were hoping to get that in Tristan Thompson. Tristan Thompson also is not the same player. He's not a difference maker, too. So my potential trade that I have for the Celtics, I say the Cavs get forward Grant Williams and two first-round picks. Now that's, it's a little steep for two first-round picks. So... In exchange, the Celtics will get center Andre Drummond and forward Torian Prince. Now, if you replace Torian Prince on the bench with Grant Williams and you replace Daniel Theiss in the starting lineup with Andre Drummond, you become a completely different powerhouse in the East, I think. And if that means, if that's the cut, if that means. The cost of two first round on the bench. Um, sorry, are the uh, out. Um, the so they have many different people on the bench is uh from over from last few rounds uh from these last few first round picks. They it's it's interesting. They've hoarded a lot. They got Romanford on the bench. They got Car- Carson Edwards. You can. Bench is full of guys from all their first round draft picks that they've been hoarding over the last few years. They can afford to then get rid of two first round picks, even if it's not like the high end ones, even if like if they have control over some teams that are in the lottery. Hold on to those, maybe trade a couple of their own picks. And if they're good, it'll be like in the 20s or something like that. But I think Andre Drum and Torian Prince could be a dynamic move. Torian Prince came over in the James Harden trade. He's definitely a guy who, along with Drummond, McGee, Kevin Love, could be on the trade block during this season if he has any value. There's no doubt about that. Um, he's a good player. 
he's a good three and D guy. Um, he's he had some good years in Atlanta too, some really good years alongside with with Dennis Schroeder. Um, before that team decided to go in a different direction, they're you know they're competitive again. So those are those are some interesting interesting things that I think that sh- should be considered for Andre Drummond. I think that I think our last resort might be him getting bought out. That might happen because there's no way they can finish the season with Jared Allen and Andre Drummond. Uh, they it was um uh was has been taken from Allen and Vice during the down stretch of the season. Um a few games uh, game against Jared Allen which the entire uh entire entire uh or, um, they're gonna be they're gonna be taking things away from me. It's it's going to be interesting. Like they can't go much longer of the two of them together. It's much of a budding, a budding situation. I'm not too sure that uh, it'll work out like an entire season. One of them's going to get frustrated. Jared Allen's their future center. They so they're going to figure out something. And another reason why I put the trade value being so low on some of these trades is a lot of teams know that the clock is ticking for the Cavs to trade Drummond as well. They, they're either, they either trade him soon or they're going to have to buy him out because he's going to hit free agency. He's not coming back. Going to sign a long-term deal somewhere else. But it's, 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 I don't know. It's a very interesting situation. And those are ones to consider. I definitely think trailblazers and Celtics are two teams. You really need to highly consider um, to be potential to potential part, partners for Andre Drummond. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think that those are the two best fits. You know, looking across the league, um, a lot of teams could use a big man, but those are two competitive teams that are easily the best fits for for Drummond. He's dynamic. He's a great scorer. He's a great rebounder. You know, he's he provides a lot to your team, and he's he's a winning player too. So I think... Those are all guys that are going to that. Um, those are all teams that are going to need to highly consider him with the Bulls. And you never know. I mean, when Detroit decided to trade him, it, I did not think that he was going to go to Cleveland. You might end up getting a different uh, rebuilding team than the Bulls that decide to swoop in and try to take a chance on him and try to sign him long term if they're not if they're not happy with their centers. So I think think that's going to be very interesting to. Uh, to look out for it. That's definitely got to be coming soon. So we're going to join, we're going to bring Tom Scavetta onto the show. Hey Paul, what's up? How's it going, Tom? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. How about you? Ready to talk some, uh, ready to talk some basketball. It's been, a, it's been a great weekend and uh, it's been a great week for basketball. So I'm looking forward to kind of hammering this down with you here tonight. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it too. I had to get you on because we knew because we're going to talk about some important subjects. We're going to talk about Kobe Bryant. We're going to talk about the college basketball um, lineup for the week. Basically, to give give our insights onto the games. So, I think that uh, that'll be it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. 
So obviously, um, basketball world is going to be mourning tomorrow. There's no doubt about that. Tomorrow will mark the one-year anniversary of the tragic death of NBA legend Kobe Bryant, a pinnacle of excellence both on and off the court. As we celebrate the life of one of the greatest players to ever step foot on the hardwood, I've decided to rank my top five Kobe Bryant moments that I believe truly define his legacy. I decided to put them together. There are five moments that really stand out. I mean, to a little introduction, you know, growing up being a diehard basketball fan, you know, we were, I've definitely been blessed with some of the best play, getting to watch some of the best players to ever play Kobe, LeBron, you name it. But Kobe, Kobe was a transcending figure without a doubt, both on and off the court. He was, he was, uh, one of the biggest faces in the country, one of the biggest faces in the sports world. And uh, tomorrow being the one-year anniversary of of his tragic death is definitely going to be something that hits home for a lot of people. And I know the Lakers are probably not going to do a formal tribute for him. Uh, they don't really need to, I don't think, especially since there's no fans at the Staples Center. And it's too, and it's a very difficult subject. But um, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's going to be a sad time for without a doubt you know it was one of the many terribly annoying things that happened in 2020 one of the terrible um parts of the beginning of 2020 and you know it's it definitely definitely hits home for some people yeah I, i remember the day that um you know kobe bryant passed away and it was just weird because i had just gotten home and i found out and then breaking news i was like Holy cow! And TMZ reported this, so I didn't. I didn't know how accurate it was. And then I found out, and I'm like, "Wow!" You know, this guy. When I was growing up, that was one of the first NBA. Um, he was one of the first players I got merchandise of. Um, you know, and it's weird because now you see like some of his like teammates that played with him in his um, in his final years these are the guys that are like julius randall for example played in kobe i know we're gonna get to that in a minute but played kobe's final game with him um you know seeing guys like that and the impact he had on the players that not that he left behind but the players that he left an impact on he pretty much left an impact on everybody this whole thing with the mamba mentality um will leave an everlasting impact on pretty much the entire basketball world. It's kind of a movement within this whole basketball world to follow in his footsteps and live a Kobe Bryant type of life, if that makes sense. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And we're living in the era too, where everyone, all the dynamic young stars in the league grew up watching him too. You know, everybody like molded their game around watching Kobe Bryant. We saw so we've seen so many fans and then the veterans too who all played alongside Kobe. Like everybody's got a story about Kobe. And it's so difficult. It was in kind of an earth shattering moment last year in the NBA season. Um it, the it was it was an, definitely awful. So many teams uh paid tribute. I thought it was beautiful. I think a lot of teams are going to pay tribute uh, tomorrow, probably do the shot clock violation thing again, or you know, or do a uh, um, pregame, do some type of pregame uh, tribute to him, something like that. But it's there's no doubt the Mamba mentality is a huge thing, and it's one of the biggest parts of this generation of basketball. 
There's no doubt about it. So, um, so a couple of side notes to put before I go into my top five Kobe moments. Um, I've, I made my NBA top 50 of all time. Uh, I wrote that out during the summer, like during COVID and all that stuff. I finally had the opportunity to do that. A later episode of this show, I'll probably reveal it more in depth of, you know, my thought process behind all of it. But I ranked my top 50 players and I personally have Kobe ranked eighth all time in my top 50. I think that that's a fair spot for him. I know a lot of people argue that he should be lower and most people probably argue that he should be even higher up on the list, like in the LeBron category, all that kind of stuff. I think that he's up there in like the Tim Duncan category. That's, that's where, that's kind of like where I put him. Um, So he's, he's ranked eighth in my, in my top 50. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about his dominance. Is it's difficult to any which way you put together a top 10, you're going to have the same names, you know, and in any form you want to do. If you're a LeBron's number one guy, if you're a Michael Jordan's number one guy, some people are even Kobe's number one guy. Um, so that's so that's some interesting stuff. And he was also third all time in scoring Kobe um, at the time of his retirement and currently sits fourth because LeBron passed him. LeBron passed him just a couple of days before his death too, which was, um, you know, a crazy, I, a crazy part that, uh, that everybody remembers, you know, the Kobe giving, Le, giving LeBron a shadow for passing him on social media. And, you know, a few days later of his tragic death. So it was terrible without a doubt. And, uh, so to jump in, I'll jump right into my top five moment defining, Kobe moments. Basically, these aren't aren't specifically have to be just like one game. Um, it's an overall thing. Five the the top five moments that Kobe that made Kobe Kobe. So number five, I got Kobe's final game versus Utah. Now most people are going to have this on their top five list. There's no doubt about that. Um, so on April 13th, 2016 at the Staples Center, the Lakers beat the Jazz 101 to 96. Um, they finished 17 and 65 that season, which was the worst record in Lakers history. Um, Kobe was hurt for part of the year. Everyone knew it was his final year. It led to Kobe's retirement. But on that specific night, Staples Center was packed with fans. It was packed with celebrities. It was packed with former teammates. Everyone was there just to watch Kobe go to work. And he went out in the most fitting way that he possibly could. He scored 60 points, had four rebounds, four assists, shot 22 of 50 from the field, six of 21 from three and 10 of 12 from the free throw line, which, you know, he shot under 50%. There's no doubt about that. He did take a lot of shots, um, but it was the perfect, it was the perfect set for, uh, for him to go out because that finished off a 17 and 65 season a season that led to the Lakers having one of the top having one of the top picks in the 2016 NBA draft. So, it's they they had a difficult year all year. There was a young Julius Randle, it was a young D'Angelo Russell season. Um they all stepped aside just to, you know, let Kobe be Kobe one last time, and I thought it was amazing because 60 points is is not like a 30-point night. You know, it takes it's incredible to score 60 points when you're in your prime, let alone the last game after so many injuries that Kobe was dealing with. Um, then obviously it was let it, 
ended up with the, his number eight and his number 24 retired the very next season. So, Tom, what are your thoughts on uh, his final game? That was a great game. You know, I watched that, um, you know, a, a week after he passed. And I just remember watching that game. He's going up against Utah. And, again, Utah was, uh, you know, they were a lot better than them. They had 40 wins on the year. And he was just playing with veins in his ice the entire game. You couldn't stop him. And it seemed like towards the end of the game, it was a very close game. Uh, and I believe the Lakers did end up winning the game uh, by, like, five points or something like that. But he – really that was the perfect way to go out it was kind of like um you know like a Derek Jeter type of moment you know and you don't see yeah. that often you don't see real goodbyes in sports there's very few athletes that get that and it doesn't matter what way the season's going or how things are um you know shaping up for you as an individual but that was the perfect way for him to go out. I would probably agree with you. I'd probably put that at number five. I know there's another few moments that you debate, but yeah, I think that would probably go five for me as well for Kobe for sure. Yeah, without a doubt, it's it goes. It just defines his dominance. You know, we all we all watch that game. Um, I thought one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on NBA Twitter is uh, after his death when they replayed his sixty point game. Everybody was live tweeting it, pretending like it was just happening and stuff. I thought that that was so cool. I thought that, that was a great moment. Every all NBA fans really came together and were just like, we we're just yeah. We got to enjoy Kobe one last time. We got to rewatch it, even if you watched it live, like I did, like you did, um, like most NBA fans did. Um, it was it was an incredible moment, and you know it was against a good team. It was the fi- it was the final game of the season. I it's just it was an extremely fitting way, and that's the be- that's the beautiful part about sports. You see so many beautifully written ends of stories that like that seem like they should be in a movie, but actually come out to be real life. Like Derek Jeter, for instance, too, just like you said, you know, getting a walk-off hit in his final at-bat, like, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff you write, you would see in a movie, and it happens in real life. So, like, that's, so that was something that was insane. I think that it was, easily has to be in Kobe's top five most defining moments because, that just defines his career if I've ever seen it. Uh, and we'll go to number four. Number four, I got Kobe's 81-point game versus Toronto. Now, everybody remembers this game. You know, Everybody talks about how Jalen Rose couldn't guard him. Even though he didn't guard him all night, it was uh, it was a mix between guys. But this, this was Kobe Bryant's single greatest game of his career. January 22nd, 2006 at the Staples Center, uh, the Lakers beat the Raptors 122 to 104. Uh, Kobe just absolutely went off. He had 81 points, which is the second greatest scoring game in NBA history behind Will. It's the closest anyone has gotten to Will Chamberlain's 100 point game back in the 60s. Um, I'm not too sure anybody's going to ever beat that 100 point game. I feel like I feel like there probably won't be anybody that even beats Kobe's 81 point game. Devin Booker got kind of close a few years ago with that 70 point game, but it's it's. I'm not even. I don't think anyone's surpassing 100 points, and I'm not even too sure that anybody's going to surpass his 81 point game. Kobe scored 81 points. He scored. He grabbed six rebounds, three steals on 28 of 46 shooting, seven for 13 from three, and 18 for 20 from the free throw line. So he was just hitting on all cylinders. Shot more than 50 percent from three. I mean, this is another game. I remember being a little kid. I didn't watch this game because this wasn't on like. This wasn't on ESPN or anything like that. Um, 
it was, it wasn't, it was a local game for Los Angeles. I didn't watch the game, but I remember hearing about it the next day and being in just it, like just watching sports center and how incredible it was watching those highlights. Um, it was, it was just an all around amazing performance. And that game though defines that season too. And we'll get to, and we'll get to that specific era of the Lakers too later on down the list. But that 81 point game was just, it was magnificent because he wasn't just chucking up shots too. You know, he, you could look at his, if, as field goal percentage, he shot over 50% from the field and from three, he hit 18 of 20 free throws. I mean, you can't score 81 points and not be absolutely on fire in an NBA game. You know, the, and that was without a doubt, top one of Kobe's top five moments. Yeah, and this was this came at a really strange time too, 2006. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, Paul. When I was growing up, I didn't have cable, so like I really couldn't watch these games live. I mean, I used to, I I mean, I used to illegally stream some some games on like the, that first row sports network. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, I remember watching, um, you know, kind of a, a recap of that game, and um, I I've saw it on YouTube before I actually watched it recently a couple of years ago. And I remember that's when they had Jalen Rose, Peterson and um, yeah. Mike, Mike James, those guys. Yep. Uh, yeah. Chris Bosch, of course. So yeah, this was a year where the Lakers were bad, right? They didn't have many good players. It was Lamar Odom, uh, Parker. And I think they had like these terrible names that you want to forget, like Chris Mim, Kwame Brown, if you remember him too. Like Exactly. And I'm always, and I'm well equipped. I'm going to get to those guys. I I can't wait. This further down my list. Part of Kobe's dominance. You can't you can't define the Kobe Bryant story without mentioning Kwame Brown, Chris Mim, all those guys. There's no doubt about it. Like that was that was crazy. And we got got a nice comment from a fellow review and preview member, Henry and Dichter, Stuart Scott's recap of the 81 point game. It's as legendary as Kobe's performance. RIP to both. Uh couldn't have said it better myself. That is, up, Hank? that is definite facts. Thank you, Hank, for watching. Um, yeah, I think that like that's that's pure nostalgia right there. Watching Stuart Scott on Sports Center recapping Kobe's eighty-one point game. Forget about it. I like you know if they're looking back at the box score too. Um, that old Raptors team, just pure nostalgia. That was a team I I grew up. Those were the Raptors I grew up on. Jalen Rose, Chris Bosh. Um, before you know, he started the big three. Uh, that was before Jose Calderon, I think, though. Too, I think that was, it was Mike James, like you said. So that I was, I think he was on the bench, Calderon. Yeah, he did. That makes sense. He might have been like a rookie or something. That was, I think, he, Matt Bonner was their fifth starter, actually. That was the year he got into a fight with Kevin Durant, uh, not Kevin Durant, Kevin Garnett. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, he was. <laughs> That I remember that he was on the Raptors. He was their sharpshooter before he was the sharpshooter on uh, on the Spurs. He was he was an interesting player, Matt Bonner. He was not, <laughs> he was not very good, but he he could do what he what he had to do, which was come out and hit some threes. New balance so that was, guy. That was that was an interesting game. There's no doubt about that. Interesting, like if you look, go back and look at the box score, it's very interesting. Some of the names you can pull out too is very nostalgic. So, um, moving down the list to number three. Just as we were talking about the 2005-2006 season. Now, this isn't just one specific game. 
like the other two were. This is an entire season, but it's worth mentioning because this defines Kobe's legacy. So after the three Pete's, their third after their third championship in 2002, they failed a bit in 2003. They tried to create the Lakers tried to create a powerhouse with Carl Malone, Gary Payton that did not go over well. They ended up losing in the finals to the Pistons. Um, and tension began to to swirl around Kobe and Shaq. They were a dynamic duo. Um, you know, you if pe- people remember the kind of situations that were going on, there was a lot of drama on and off the court between the two of them. They both wanted to be the star of the team, and it, it became difficult. And Kobe eventually came to management with an ultimatum and said, you either trade Shaq or you trade me. So they ended up trading Shaq to the Miami Heat before the 05-06 season, where he ended up winning a championship with young D. Wade in the 05-06 season. But that left the Lakers decimated. And one of the key pieces they got back in the Shaq trade was Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom was a huge prospect out of New York, went to URI, started his career with the Clippers, went to the Heat, um, point forward, great passer, good shooter, um, an all-around smart basketball player. And he actually played big roles in uh, Kobe's two final championships, too. Um, His time with the Lakers was definitely not a failure. But after for the 2005-2006 season, it's worth noting that the roster consisted of Kobe, and the only other notable names are Andrew Bynum, a young Andrew Bynum who was not the Andrew Bynum that he was when they were winning championships. Um, before you know he fell out of the league, but he was very dominant for a few years, an All Star for a few years. Lamar Odom, who was good, and Sasha Vujacic, who was a good backup. Some of the joke names that they had: Smush Parker. Chris Mim and Kwame Brown, just like you were saying. Smush Parker was actually the starting point guard, too. Chris Mim started at center a lot, too. That just proves how bad that team is. And that team ended up finishing 45 and 37, eight games over 500. And they lost to the Suns in the first round of the playoffs in seven games. That Suns team with Steve Nash, who won MVP, um, Sean Marion, Amari Stoudemire, that Suns team was dynamic. They they pushed them to they that team who was only Kobe Bryant pushed them to seven games, which I think Leandro. is incredible. absolutely incredible. And if you if by you know the names that I rattled off didn't already tell you what Kobe had to do that season, he averaged thirty five point four points per game, shot forty five percent from the field and thirty four point seven percent from three. So he was he put the team on his back. And he knew he had to score basically a third of the points every single night in order for them to win. And they ended up finishing eight games over 500, which I think is incredible. And also, like we just said, it was the 0506 season was the same season. They scored the 81 point game against the Raptors. Um, he led the league in scoring. Obviously, that was his best scoring season of his career, averaging 35 points. Um, absolutely incredible. I think the entire 2005-2006 season, everybody has to know if, if you're a if you want to know about Kobe's legacy, because that is one of the biggest stories of just putting a team on your back mm-hmm. that there is in the NBA, even though they got eliminated in the first round in seven games, got to look at their workload. It's, it was incredible how they finished. If that team, the worst Lakers team in history was the um, 2016 team that finished 17 and 65 in his final season. If you take Kobe off of that Lakers team with in 2005, 2006, there's no doubt that that team's worse than 17 wins. Um, 
they, which is kind of incredible to think that one player can get you 30 plus wins in a season, but that's exactly what he did that year. Absolutely. He's just a very dynamic player all around Kobe Bryant was. And, you know, he changed the game. He changed the game. He changed the way you had to adapt. If you're a defense, now you take him off that team. They, they only come up with single digit wins that year in 2016. But I mean, this so five Oh six year you were just talking about Paul. I mean, he's he's he he was just so intense in his preparation the way he and the reason why he was so great is he did things nobody else wanted to do he got up at exactly. two o'clock in the morning to lift um you know he he worked out pretty much all hours of the day all hours of the night that was his life he ate breathed and slept basketball and that's exactly who he was the person and who he was the player and that's why Everybody loved them for it because you'll never see anything like it ever again. Exactly. And there's, in my opinion, even though I have Kobe ranked eighth, there are two players in NBA history who had the greatest work ethic, and it was Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. I don't think that you can even debate. Um, and that's not a knock on anybody else. Obviously, LeBron had a tremendous work ethic. You know, Magic was amazing. Kareem was amazing. Will Chamberlain was amazing. All of that. That's not a knock on any of them. But when you hear stories about just like this, the level that these two had to get to in order to succeed um, and become a champion, they were fully committed 24 hours a day, seven days a week into being a star in the NBA. And, you know, there's not a lot of players that do that. There's been a lot of stars in this league that barely even practice. You know, it's it's interesting to see. And that's something that's very important to remember when you're remembering the legacy of Kobe Bryant. And then moving on to number two, there's this one is probably one or two on anybody's list if they have to make a top five. You got the three-peat alongside Shaq from 2000 to 2002. Now, this was the beginning of his dominance. Uh, he Kobe was drafted by the Lakers in 1996, drafted by the Hornets, traded to the Lakers in 1996. That same offseason, they signed Shaquille O'Neal to a long-term contract after he wanted out of the Magic and he was a free agent. So right off the bat, they created a potential big two right there, a young uh, star in Shaq and a guy that they were hoping was going to be become a star in Kobe Bryant. Took him a couple of years of coming off the bench then he was starting to. Then he was able to start to get things going. Um, they beat the Pacers in 2000. They beat the Sixers in 2001, and the Nets in 2002. And they created arguably the greatest duo in NBA history uh, for those three straight seasons. They they were unstoppable. Um, and you know, people can go back and forth who was more dynamic on that team, uh, Kobe or Shaq. They were amazing with each other. Was the bottom line. They were that team was a unit. Uh, Phil Jackson was their head coach. They were just an incredible team. And, you know, in the, in to, so to start it off, in the 99-2000 season, they finished 67-15. and 15. Shaq averaged 29.7 points, 13.7 rebounds, three blocks. Kobe averaged 22.5 points, 6.3 rebounds, 4.9 assists. Both were all-stars, all-NBA, all-defensive, and Shaq won MVP that season. I mean, Shaq averaged 30-14. and 14. It's a kind of a layup to to win MVP at that point, um, and they ended up winning the finals. They won their first championship together by beating the old Indiana Pacers, who still had Reggie Miller at that point. Um, they had Chris Mullen 
too. They had they had a, they had a lot of old Hall of Famers um, that just and they just could not compete with uh, with Kobe and Shaq. They to say it lightly. Um, I think the the Pacers Pacers put up a fight, but it's, um, that team was too dominant. Then we go to the the very next season, the two thousand two thousand one season. Uh, they went fifty six and twenty six. Um, the the their dominance came in the playoffs mostly. Kobe averaged twenty eight point five points a game that season. Shaq averaged twenty eight point seven. They both averaged right around the same points per game. Um, Shaq's numbers dropped a little bit, 28.7 points, 12.7 rebounds, still dynamic. Um, all the, the, both of them were all NBA, all defensive, all that stuff again. And the biggest story of that season though, is they went 15 and one in the playoffs. They swept the Blazers, they swept the Kings, and then they swept the Spurs. Their only loss came in game one of the NBA finals against Allen Iverson and an old Dikembe Mutombo and the Sixers, where they lost game one, then they won four straights and and beat them in five games. So that was pure dominance. There was no one in the league who was ready for them. The That Sixers team, you know, it was incredible that they even won one game. You know, Allen Iverson had put that team on his back the entire season. Every NBA fan knows that. That, that team was decimated, too. That Sixers team, Allen Iverson was a superstar that's the reason why they made it all the way to the finals, but they they didn't they didn't beat up on bad teams either. They swept the Blazers, who had Scottie Pippen at the time. Um, they were kind of they were getting kind of old, but had a lot of good veterans. They swept the Kings, who were young and hungry. Mike Bibby, Vlade Divac, all of them, and the Spurs too who had just won the 98-99 NBA Finals the, uh, for Tim Duncan's first championship, Greg Popovich's first championship. And they still had David Ro- Tim Duncan, David Robinson on that team. So, um, they, and they swept them. There's no, there's no doubt on how dominant they were. They were just scary. They were destined to win that championship. And then in the last of the big three of the three seasons, they went 58-24 and in 01 um, swept the Nets in the NBA Finals. Kobe averaged 25.2 points and Shaq averaged 27.2 points. And um, another dominant season. They beat the Nets in that Finals. Jason Kidd and Kerry Kittles and all of them um, were swept. Didn't really stand a chance against them to make it three straight. And Shaq and Kobe were all NBA all three seasons. Kobe was all defensive all three seasons and Shaq was all defensive for two of those three seasons, and Shaq also won the MVP in 2000. So those were – there's definitely no explaining Kobe's legacy if you if you don't put in his time with Shaq and specifically the three-peat. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a couple of insane things. The Lakers and the Kings had a very strong rivalry back in the early 2000s. They were, you know, neck and neck. They were going at each other, and – Another thing, too, um, at least field goal percentage-wise, Shaq had his best years with Kobe Bryant in this league. I think Kobe made Shaq a better player, and that's why everybody around him just gravitated towards him. Now, today, back then in the 2000s, Paul, it was more like duos that were dominating. Now it's trios. You have to get trios in order to win championships. Back then, all you needed was an elite duo with a good complementary of players around you. 
especially with a guy like Kobe Bryant. I'm wondering if Kobe could play in today's NBA with just a duo and go up against some of these trios and beat them because it'll be really interesting to see how that would fare out. But, um, yeah, Paul, I mean, you said it best, Kobe Bryant, those seasons again. Those teams were no knocks. And the New Jersey Nets, I mean, you had a couple of veterans on that team. You had, I know Vince Carter was still young, but he was a veteran by that point, Jason Kidd, um, you know, and they they really didn't have it easy, in my opinion. The West was brutal back then, too. It still exactly. is now. <laughs> exactly. There's no doubt about it. That was the prime of the West. And then, like, even after yeah. the Lakers uh, split up, you had the Spurs who dominated the West. Right after that, it was it was incredible. And uh, Shaq doesn't win the 2000 MVP without Kobe. There's no doubt about that. He averaged you know 30 and 14 that season. Like he be playing alongside Kobe, the two of them made them the, into the players that they were. Shaq was an amazing player even after the Lakers going to the Miami and winning another championship. Kobe was a great player after Shaq left, and and he won two more championships with the Lakers. But they were never when they were together. It would have been so much more fun. It's, it's fun to think about the amount that they could have accomplished if they had stuck together even longer than, you know, than just that. And they didn't try to experiment with the, uh, in 03, 04, trying to uh, put together that big, big four, basically. Like, we adding Carl Malone and Gary Payton to the team that was, ended up imploding on them, losing to the Detroit Pistons in the NBA Finals. But... There's no doubt about that. Just like you said, for all of NBA history, there's really big twos. Um, them being one of the best ones now, we're living in an age where there's always big threes. You know, the first one I can remember is the big three Celtics, and that'll lead me into my number one is beating the Celtics in the 2010 NBA Finals. Now, a lot of people probably won't have this as the number one, but for me personally, this is... NBA championship is what excelled Kobe Bryant into the top 10 players to ever play because he proved he didn't need Shaq. He proved that he could dominate and win championships by a team led by himself. A lot of people argued was Shaq, the leader of the team was Kobe, the leader of the team for those three championships. Obviously um, the year before Kobe also won, they beat the Orlando magic in 2009, but it's, that Orlando team was young. They had a young Dwight Howard, young Jameer Nelson. Um, they weren't they weren't that great. But this big three Celtics team had won the 2008 NBA Finals, and they were supposed to win much more than just one championship. Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce. We all remember that. I still remember the day that they tra- that they made the trade and assembled the big three. That was incredible. It was absolute. It was absolutely insane. And for Kobe to knock knock off the big three Celtics with a team consisting of him, Pau Gasol, who was an all-star. There's no doubt about that. Derek Fisher, who was a good point guard and Lamar Odom, who was a good small forward. Um, It was him and Pau Gasol were the big two, but they were going up against a big three. They were playing against three hall of famers. Pau Gasol and Kobe are both hall of famers. Derek Fisher was a hall of good players. If there, if there is a hall of good players, Derek Fisher would be there. Same with Lamar Odom. They're not Hall of Famers, though. And he averaged 28.6 points per game, 8 rebounds, 3.9 assists per game, 2.1 steals in 41.2 minutes a game in the, in the series, I should say, um, against the Celtics. He played 
41 out of the 48 minutes, and they ended up winning. I think that this championship, the reason why I put this number one is because this is the championship that cemented him as one of the greatest players to ever play. Put him in the same category as the Will Chamberlains, the Tim Duncans, the um, the Bill Russells, you know. And people can argue if he's even in the upper echelon of like Magic Johnson and all those guys. Um he put he that put himself in that conversation beating the Celtics. Yeah, I think it definitely did, and I agree that was my number one moment. Out of everything on your list, Paul, I agree with everything except I might replace number three, the 0506 season, with one individual game from that season. I think the Mavericks game to me, where he scored, I think it was 62 points through through three quarters. Uh and the Lakers were beating Dallas bad. The Mavericks only had so Kobe outscored Dallas through three quarters of that game. I think for me, that would probably be my number three. I mean, it, it kind of culminates into your number three a little yeah. bit in that in that season. But yeah, personally for me, um, beating the Celtics is on the top of my list as well. That's a huge moment. Um, again, beating a team you couldn't beat two years prior, coming back. And, you know, overcoming that adversity and those critics. The Lakers had a lot of critics that year. And I'm pretty sure, um, I forget, it might have been Vujicic hit a couple of, I don't know, I don't know if that was, no, that was 09, I think, where he hit the free throws towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was 09, I believe. Yeah. But to come back in 2010 and take down those Boston Celtics, that was at that point in time in my opinion the biggest feat he had ever accomplished and the biggest feat that was probably accomplished since jordan winning the six rings with the bulls yeah i agree i absolutely agree and it put him at five rings and put him right up there with jordan um in any way we want to argue it um you could some people might might have him even ahead of Jordan. I know that. I know some people are huge on Kobe, but um being up there, but that the Celtics, there's no doubt about that the Celtics series is what leapfrogged him into one of the greatest ever, and not just the one of the greatest of his generation. You know, he truly proved how good he was. Um so that so that's all for Kobe Bryant. Uh you know Tomorrow, the league will pay tribute to him. Um, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. And I was happy I was able to put together my top five favorite moments. Um, got to relive my childhood a little bit and talk about that. So we're going to we'll switch over to college basketball a little bit. The new AP poll just came out. Um, a couple of interesting surprises that came across to me. First, um, Alabama jumped from 18 to 9. Alabama has been playing great. They are low-key, probably the best team in the SEC right now. Um, John Petty Jr., Herb Jones, like they're they've they've got some ballers on that team. There's no doubt about it. Um, Creighton fell from 11 to 17. That's not that surprising. They've had some bad losses. Marcus Zagorowski was out for a bit. He and that that loss really hurt them. Um, they lost some bad games. UConn ended up falling out of the top 25 too after losing to St. John's, and Virginia jumped from 13 to eight. So we'll be seeing another rebound from Virginia. Yeah, Virginia is really interesting. Now, they lost three great players two years ago in Ty Jerome, DeAndre Hunter, and Kyle Guy to the NBA. And now 
the younger players from that team are beginning to emerge as the leaders, as were last year, they were still kind of young in a sense. Jay Huff is a redshirt senior now. He's been fantastic. Um, they also have uh, Hauser, the transfer from Marquette. He's been great. And Kihei Clark, mm-hmm. who, in my opinion, had the biggest role in that 2019 national championship out of the guys that are still left. They're doing a real nice job, Paul. And I think um, they're looking, re- they're in the driver's seat in the ACC right now. That's my biggest thing that Alabama coming out of nowhere, uh, taking a page out of the football program. <laughs> they're 8 0 in the SEC. So, but they got oh, a couple of crazy games this week, though. They got Kentucky tomorrow and then they got Oklahoma on the yeah. road Saturday. Virginia is interesting because this also might be one of the most underwhelming top top halves of the ACC we've seen in a long time. Usually the ACC dominates the top the top 25. The it's not the case this year. You've got a lot of teams struggling, notably Duke. Everybody knows that, but um we've they've had a, there's there's been a lot of good teams that have been losing bad games. Virginia's been one of the most consistent teams in the ACC and they might very well end up winning the ACC championship. I would not be shocked. Um, Tony Bennett's got an amazing program. He always figures it out. Hauser has been playing great this year. Um, and I liked the I liked the Kihei Clark um, giving him a mention because he is low-key one of the best facilitators in college basketball. He doesn't get as much credit. He wasn't one of the bigger names like uh, Ty Jerome and Kyle Guy on the uh, championship team, but he does his job. He's a great playmaker. Um and I like I like him a lot. I think Virginia is a team to look out for, big time. And then like come five, on. Sorry, I was gonna say he's very small too. By the way, he is. He is. He's below six feet. I think right. Yeah, he's five ten. I think five ten, five eleven. Yeah, five ten. He's anybody's quick. He's a he good is. player. He's a very good player. Everybody's got to watch out for him if you're watching a Virginia game. But you take a look at Kia Clark. So some of the top college hoops games on this week. We got it. We've got a decent amount of. Solid games. The first one, number 10, Texas Tech at number 11, West Virginia's Monday tonight at 9 o'clock. Um, this game's going to be really good. I love watching Texas Tech play. Mac McClung is awesome. Uh, the redshirt senior, Marcus Santos Silva, who transferred from VCU, is having a good season. Uh, Terrence Shannon's having a good season. They have a good all-around team. They've lost some, they've lost some bad games. They haven't played in over a week because of COVID um, since they lost to Baylor like 10 days ago or something like that. I was watching that game that maybe nine days ago. Um, they haven't played since that loss. So that'll make it even more interesting. Uh, West Virginia has blown a couple of big games too, but they're right neck and neck w- with each other. And it's a big 12 rivalry. So that's why it'll be big. I love miles McBride, by the way, he's averaging over 15 points a game and um you know, he shoots over 45% from the field and from deep. So if West Virginia has a chance tonight, I don't even know if you'd call this that much of an upset because I think the teams are very evenly matched. I'd actually give the edge to West Virginia in this game. Oh, I would since too. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Texas Tech, they don't have Mooney anymore. They don't have Owens. And I believe uh, David Moretti Mer- is gone as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a new breed over there in uh, Red Raider Nation. It is, and even though West Virginia is technically one below Texas Tech at West Virginia, West Virginia is the favorite in my opinion. Yeah, I think yep. West Virginia has been playing some great basketball. Miles McBride is a stud. Derek Culver is a stud. Um, he's having an amazing season. Um, 
I think that's I think that's going to be a great game. It's a Big Twelve rivalry, so you can't go wrong. And then next up, we got twenty four Oklahoma. Oklahoma just rejoined the top twenty five this week um, after some big wins. They're playing at number five Texas Tuesday at seven. Something important to remember, though, today Shaka Smart tested positive for COVID. So will this game get canceled? I haven't heard anything yet. Um, if not, Smart's probably not going to be coaching Texas for the next couple of weeks. So that's a big advantage for Oklahoma if Shaka Smart's not there. We're wishing, you know, wishing Shaka a speedy recovery. Hopefully he doesn't have any symptoms. But we do just got that news today that that he actually tested positive. So hopefully um so we'll see how that that plays out. Yeah, and I think Texas will be okay. They have four players in double figures as far as scoring. So I think they should be able to handle Oklahoma. I mean, the biggest threat for the Sooners is Austin Reeves. So even if that game does get played without Shaka Smart, I think Texas is going to probably get a sizable win in this game. I agree. They got a lot of veterans. Andrew Jones, like you said, cancer survivor, was able to red shirt. He's having a tremendous season. Um, Texas has an all-around great team. They really do. Greg Brown, who's potentially going to be a lottery pick this upcoming NBA draft, um, power forward dynamic, uh, Kai Jones, who's another potential first round pick. I mean, Shaka Smart, it took him a few years, but he, it looks like he's finally got a contender at Texas. He was amazing at VCU, um, turning that program around. Um, he struggled for a bit. He brought in some big recruits. You know, we saw Jared Allen was there. We see, we saw, um, uh, some, some of the other guys, we saw, um, some other first round picks, these past several years, but they haven't been able to compete to Jackson Hayes. That's who I was trying to think of Jackson Hayes too. Um, they brought in some good talent, but they haven't been able to compete. This is one of the deepest Texas Mo teams. Bamba. What was that? Mo Bamba was there too. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mo Bamba. So they've <laughs> had, they've had three legitimate big men. They, he, he loves to bring in big men. They've had they've had their fair share of lottery picks the last few years under Shaka Smart. It's just they're finally putting it together now. They're going to have another one with Greg Brown, so he's, he's most likely going to be a lottery pick. So next up, we got Kentucky versus number nine Alabama it's Tuesday at seven. Kentucky struggled all season long, as we all know. Uh, one of the many, one of the several blue bloods that have not had a good season. Uh, another SEC game, though they beat LSU this past weekend. Alabama is just rolling though. Alabama's red hot. They're 13 and 3 first in the SEC and they're on a 9 game winning streak. Um I I don't see Kentucky also lost by 20 the last time the two, these two played this season. Kentucky is a bit of a different team than the first time they played. Alabama is just really good though. I feel like Bama's definitely going to win this, but I'm interested to see if Kentucky can stay in it and maybe even potentially knock them off. It depends. I mean, you got to worry about Herbert Jones, too, for the Crimson Tide. He's a really good three-point shooter, and you mentioned John Petty Jr. before, uh, nearly 48% from the field. That's a lot. Bama also has four players in double-figure scoring. So I think that's a lot to ask for a young Kentucky team, but it could be done. I mean, Calipari, he recruits very well. This year it hasn't turned out. He hasn't gotten the results that he would have liked. But, um, yeah, I, I would say the game is definitely on a potential upset watch. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that if Kentucky can figure it out, I, there's a lot of interesting teams in the SEC, I think. There's a lot of teams that 
win big games and then lose terrible games. Kentucky being yeah. one of them, Florida being another one, LSU being another one, the, these teams, uh, Auburn being another one. None of these teams are dynamic or even looked at as like top teams, but they can give some of these teams fits. Like we've seen some great performances and some terrible performances from these teams. So I think the SEC is really an anomaly this year. It's it's kind of interesting. They they've got they've got an interesting situation going on. Alabama and Tennessee are really the only two uh, definite things that you got there. And then we got an eight ten matchup. We got twenty two St Louis showing some love to St Louis because they're back in the top twenty five at Richmond. Richmond was projected to be a powerhouse going into this season. They were in some in some analysts top twenty five prior to the season. Um, they were in most people's top 50 going into the season. But the only problem is that we got to make sure that we include this because St. Louis ranked 22, but St. Louis is 7-1, and one, and they haven't played since December 23rd. They haven't played in nearly a month because of COVID. This is going to be their first game back. Villanova had a similarly long break. We just saw them return to action. Uh, St. Louis is finally going to be coming back. They've... Uh, They've been at the end of the rankings because they haven't played played big games, and they have three big games this week. They play Dayton at Richmond on Friday, and then at George Washington on Saturday. So I think this is going to be a good game to watch for. You get hit with three games in one week. I mean that that's rough coming off a month hiatus. I don't know if St. Louis is going to be able to beat Dayton. I mean I know Dayton did lose Obi Toppin, but Dayton was good last year. They were really good. So I don't know about that one. And then Richmond. That's a questionable one, too. They should be able to handle George Washington. Um, but those those first two men, Paul, that, that A-10, they've got – St. Bonaventure is another team, too. They're always competitive in the A-10. So, you know, they got a they got an uphill battle for them. Despite being ranked 22nd, I feel like they can be there because they haven't necessarily played. They kind of, kind of might be there by default in a sense. Oh, yeah. And how many times have we seen an A-10 team pick off one of the Power 5 conference teams in yeah. the tournaments? I mean, like, the A-10 is not one of the top conferences in the league. Um, without a doubt, it's not a Power 5 conference. But they put out some good teams. And just like you said, Dayton lost Obi Toppin, but Dayton's, Dayton's still got a good squad this year. They got Jalen Crutcher, who's back, who's another NBA prospect, potentially. Richmond has a good team. St. Louis has a good team. VCU's got a decent team. Well, they're struggling this year, but they sometimes have a, have a decent team. Um, And just like you said, St. Bonaventures, there's a lot of teams to worry about in that conference. Like, there's a lot of good basketball going on in the A-10. This is one game in particular. And uh, the game that I'm most excited for, number seven, Iowa, versus number 19, Illinois, Friday at 9 o'clock. Now, this... I've become a big Illinois fan this year. I'm a big Iowa Dusunmu fan. I think he's tremendous. He's going to be a lottery pick. I like Kofi Coburn. I love the team that they've put together down there um, with Underwood squad. And Iowa, I love their team too. Luca Garza, Joe Wieskamp. Uh, you can't go wrong with any of those guys. And they're all dominant. They've had some bad – both Iowa and Illinois have fallen a bit. They were both in the top 10 for a good amount of the season, but they both have fallen a bit because of bad losses. Um, but both the powerhouses of the Big Ten and Big Ten is by far the best conference in college basketball this year. Um, a player of the year matchup in this game, Io DeSumo and Luca Garza, two probably of the top three finalists right now for the player of the year. And Kofi Coburn, uh, guarding Luca Garza is going to be the player matchup that I want to really watch out for because Coburn, because they're both dynamic in the paint. 
and they're both very physical. So I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting game. Yeah, we actually have a guest who um, I co-hosted a college football show with, Andy Hopper, who's from Illinois, big Illini fan, and I know he is a huge fan of Io Desunmu. And let me tell you something, Paul. I know Illinois, they were ranked higher to start the season, like back in 2020, which I'm saying back in 2020. I can't believe I'm saying that at this point, but – that's going to be an excellent matchup to watch. You mentioned Garza, whose numbers have just been getting better. He's a four-year player, which I love. You don't see many of those, and I can guarantee you, I think at this point he's trying to prove that he can lead an Iowa team deep into the NCAA tournament this year and prove that he's a lottery pick because I don't necessarily know if he's going to be a lottery pick, but I think he's definitely going to get drafted. This game definitely helps his stock because you're going up against an elite talent like that Friday night game at 9 p.m. Eastern, everyone's going to be home watching it, you know, all these coaches and whatnot. So it's definitely a big stage for both of these players. I'm looking forward to it. I think Illinois has a has a chance to pull this one off. Oh, I do, especially the fact that it's in Illinois. I think it's big. Um, The Illini have been an amazing team this year. The program that Underwood has put together down there since taking over um, has been amazing. He he had the Stephen F. Austin job before getting the Illinois job, and you know has completely he landed Desunmu, landed Coburn. These top these top prospects. He's finally putting Illinois back on the map. I love. Um, I think that it's it's. In, I love both of these teams, and I think it's interesting, just like you said with Luca Garza, because um, he's not projected to be a first round pick as of right now. He's still in the second round. Um, I just can't see somebody in the late first not taking a chance on him with how dominant he is in college. I, we understand he's slow, a little bit unathletic, but he is such a heads-up basketball player, great passer for his size. He uh, has tremendous post moves. He can shoot. He can rebound like crazy. He's a, le- a legitimate seven-footer. Like he's, he's incredible. There's no doubt about that. And then the final... The final game to watch out for, the final matchup, we got number 15, Kansas, versus 18, Tennessee. Now, both these teams have fell a bit this week. They were both – both of these teams at one point were both in the top 10. Um, ten Tennessee had a couple of bad losses. Same with Kansas. Tennessee's 10-3 and three on the year. Kansas now 10-5 and five on the year. Um, it's an interesting non-conference matchup, a Big 12 versus SEC game. Uh, I'm, a, I'm not sure if this was a rescheduled game from earlier in the season. Uh, but it's I, it's a little bit of a treat for later in the season not to, to experience a little non-conference game. I mean, this year is so strange with all the cancellations and stuff. You see a lot of non-conference games now, like at this point of the year, regardless because they reschedule them. But this this game is going to be good. I think there's a ton of talent on both teams. They both have a lot to prove too. They've had some bad losses in the last few games, so it'll be good. This game's got heavyweights on both sides, man. I mean, you got Fulkerson, Vescovi. Uh, you got um, – I'm trying to remember who else. Doesn't Tennessee have your guy, Anasiki, from Sacred Heart? He, they yeah, do. They do. Off the bench. EJ Anasiki. Yep, he's, then, he comes off the bench for them. Kansas great player at Sacred Heart, too. Yeah, he was, he was great. Um, and then Kansas has a lot of big guys on their roster, too. I mean, you talked about that. Last show, how Kansas, but Kansas at 15, that is surprising. Um, I just want to throw this in too. My buddy Alec Walt has a comment. Uh, don't sleep on the Bonnies. They're currently eight and one. 
and receiving top 25 votes. Alec Walt went to uh, St. Bonaventure with my good buddy Fonz DeFalco. So nice. They uh, they had a couple of storming the court events back in the day. I'm pretty sure they made the tournament when they were up there. So uh, thank you very much, Alec, for commenting. Thank you so much. And hey, the Bonnies are a good team. You can never count them out. When they're playing good basketball, they can upset almost anybody. We've seen it in so many tournaments before. There's no doubt about that. Um, I'm telling you, A10 basketball is like it's a hidden gem. There's a lot of there's a lot of good teams out there. There's no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, this matchup is going to be it's going to be very interesting and sicky. Um, Tennessee's brought in a lot of good young players. They got Keon Johnson. They have Gene Springer too. Rick Barnes is doing a great job resurrecting that program, who that was ineffective the last however many years. Um, Kansas is always a powerhouse. They're another blue blood that's kind of struggling, even though they're doing a lot better than UNC, Duke, and Kentucky are. Uh, UNC, Duke, and Kentucky haven't even been ranked in weeks. But um, I, I think that, think this is going to be a really good game, to be honest with you. It's going to be a great week of college ball, too. I mean, I, I like – I mean, I, I'll be pulling for Tennessee in that one. I, I think Bill Self has – a problem right now because Kansas always has really tough competition in the actually this is a non-conference matchup for them yeah uh SEC against Big 12 but they always have a problem with their schedule even their non-conference games are difficult every year like they always start off every year playing like a Duke or a Kentucky within the first week of the season so yeah. a lot of their losses are also non-conference L's so have to that's why they're ranked so high by the committee every single year so realistically kansas right now still has a shot to get back onto the two line i think if they string together a bunch of wins tennessee's looking more at like a a three or a four but we'll get there when we get closer to uh march which is not too far away (laughs) exactly i can't wait i'm telling you since we didn't have march madness last year i'm itching for it even more this year i can't wait it's going to be great coming down to the wire and some of the conference games and uh, during the conference playoffs and everything. I can't wait. All right, we want to thank everybody for joining us on episode two of the three and D. Uh, I'm Paul Lombardi along with Tom Scavetta, and we're happy, to, ha- glad to have everybody and to continue to watch the three and D and uh, tune into review and preview uh, every week for brand new content.